0: I wonder what uh, kind of feelings you had as you heard that uh, passage read for us this morning. I have to admit that uh, when I first started to prepare this passage, I was quite shocked because I felt that Paul was kind of advocating a kind of Christian boot camp mentality for the church, a kind of uh, two strikes and you're out approach to membership within the church family. A bit like the regime, I understand, Fabio Capello, the England manager, has uh, introduced to the England football team. certainly seems to be uh, working for them, but should it be part of our church family? As I considered the passage more in depth and looked at the context, the situation into which Paul was writing in the Corinthian church, those reasons why Paul is saying what he's saying become very clear and obvious. The situation in Corinth was such, Paul had visited Corinth, he'd taken the gospel there himself, he had founded the church only a few years before. And that church had grown, it it in fact had become quite proud. It had become a church that had quite a reputation of being spiritually mature, of being quite vibrant. You might say that the Corinthian church thought that they had arrived, Spiritually speaking. But as we uh, look at our chapter this morning, it's very easy to see that Paul doesn't agree with them. If you look down at uh, verse 2, Paul speaks of them being proud in a negative way. And verse 6, he says that their boasting is not good. The reason why Paul says this is that far from moving on in their spiritual lives, Paul is saying, look, actually, you have slipped backwards, spiritually speaking because you have moved away from the cross, away from the message of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And that's why if you were with us earlier in the year, before I arrived at Christ Church, you'd have been in chapters 1 to 4 and seen Paul very early on setting the message of the cross at the heart of his message to the Corinthians. Let me just read to you chapter 1, verse 17, just back one page in a bit. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is, as it were, putting out a rallying cry to the Corinthian church to, to rally to the cross, because the cross should shape the life and the doctrine of the church. It's a rallying cry to a proud church, not to allow the prevailing culture and what other people think to shape it. Instead, the church should be shaped by the cross of Christ. I think it's a timely reminder, isn't it, for us here at Fullwood, a church with big plans, as uh, we were reminded this morning by Andrew. The Vision 2010. We're a church with a reputation not just locally, but nationally and internationally. And it's a reminder that we cannot let the culture of the world shape us. We must let the cross of Christ shape us. In our doctrine, in what we believe, and in the outworking of that doctrine in our lives. And it may well be that uh, we find these verses before us quite hard to stomach because perhaps we, like the, Chris- the Corinthians, have begun to lose sight of the cross. And uh, these chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, are going to show us again why certain things in the church that is shaped by the cross should matter. And today, it's why does purity matter? That then is the situation in the Corinthian church. It's why Paul is advocating what we may think is quite draconian measures. It may seem as though Paul is into power and boot camps. But you know, in in, in reality, as we look at these verses, we're going to see that Paul is into love and into concern for his Christian brothers and sisters. Paul loved those Corinthians so much... And he says these things because he cannot bear to think of anything stopping his family from reaching heaven. He doesn't want anything to distract them or hold them back for arriving at the end of life before God and having his judgment and being told, yes, you're with me in heaven. Purity matters, you see. Purity matters because sin is impurity. And as we started our service this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that holy God says to you and me, be holy because I am holy. We can't be holy in any other way except through what Jesus has done for us upon the cross. And that reminds us, doesn't it, that that purity and the cross are inextricably linked and so, us living in purity matters. And to deny that is to deny the cross. And indeed, to call into question yours and my place in heaven. Let me ask you a, a quick question. Uh, take a look around you. Uh, don't be scared of those that are sitting next to you. Just take a look around you and, and just ask yourself this question Who don't I want to see in heaven? Just have a quick look around. Who don't I want to see in heaven? Remember those are your brothers and sisters sitting beside you. Because you know what, brothers and sisters, that is exactly what we're saying. We're saying when we take sin lightly, when we take impurity as something that doesn't matter, we're saying that their eternal salvation doesn't matter. No, you see, what Paul is saying here is out of family concern. You see, uh, sin is a family business. Not not doing sin, but resisting sin is supposed to be a family business. We should all feel it if one of us is sinning. Indeed, if, if one of us has the opportunity to stop a brother or sister from sinning, and we don't take that opportunity, then we should be ashamed. Let me just uh, spend the rest of our time this morning just by giving uh, three more reasons from chapter 5. Why resisting sin and and pursuing purity is what is part and parcel of the cross-shaped church. It's the most loving thing that we can do. And my first point is this, that uh, sin is lethal because God will judge Verses 1 to 5. Let me just read to you the beginning of that, verses 1 to 2a. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality going on among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans, that is, non Christians. A man has had his father's wife, and you're proud. Big issue that Paul puts his finger on here is that a man is sleeping with his, probably with his stepmother. Something that not even uh, non Christian people do, but the church is not even saying that there's anything wrong with it. It's not a problem. Now, before uh, we begin to think in any way that Paul has got sex on the brain, let's just note that uh, in verse 11, Paul is not just pointing out those who are sexually immoral, he's pointing to those who are greedy, those who are idolaters, slanderers, drunkards, and swindlers. You you see, Paul hasn't got sex on the brain, but sin on the brain. And the reason why he chooses this example in verses 1 and 2 is that it's so obvious and it's such a clear case. The Old Testament is very clear. If, If you want to have a look at Deuteronomy 22 or 27, have a look at Leviticus 18 and 20, you'll very quickly see that incest is not part and parcel of God's way for our lives. In fact, Paul is uh, so sure, look at verse 3, that it's an open and shut case. He's already passed his judgment. He doesn't need to visit them and hear the the, uh, pros and cons of what's going on and hear the evidence. And yet this church is proud when they should have been pained with grief. And so Paul tells them in verses 4 and beginning of 5 what they should do. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Hand this man over to Satan. That may sound harsh. Indeed, without the rest of verse 5, it sounds very harsh. But what does Paul say the reason is? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of our Lord. You see, by saying that, Paul is not only saying that sin is lethal, but that actually it's lethal because God will judge us. Paul knows that every single person is going to face God's judgment on the day of the Lord. And this man's sin is putting that salvation in jeopardy because he's denying Jesus Christ. He's denying his death on the cross. He's denying his word in the Bible. When we see sin like that, is it not more loving to point out to someone their sin? Is it not more loving to the person who is deliberately refusing to see the the problem of their sin? Is it not more loving to send this man out of the congregation so he comes to his senses? Or should we take the alternative view, as the Corinthians were doing, and tolerate his sin, and so send him to eternal damnation? You see, Paul knew what true love was. And you know what? If you were to look in uh, Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 4 to 11, you'd see how it worked out. May well be Paul saying, look, actually, this man has come to his senses. Clearly, there's a man who has come to his senses in that passage, and he should be readmitted. May well be that that was this person, repented, and is able to return. One of the uh, ways that uh, football hooliganism has been uh, dealt with in this country recently is to uh, give a life sentence to those who have been involved in it. Prevent them from going to another football match ever again in their lives. Because people realise that actually uh, all they're doing is encouraging other people to uh, hooliganism and that by sentencing them to that, it is prevention and it is putting them out and stopping the problem. And Paul here is is advocating exactly the same thing for sinners. That for those who are flagrantly playing fast and loose with God's word, that they be put out so that that they will come to their senses, come back to the cross of Christ for forgiveness and for transformation. You see, the word of God does that if we allow not just to inform us, but to transform us. To be the people God wants us to be. I agree, this isn't a a step that uh, should be taken lightly, but it is a step that we must expect our church leaders to take because of God's judgment and because sin is lethal. When they take that step, it's not that they don't love the person, they love the person probably far more than we could ever imagine. But the step that they're taking when they do do that with somebody is entirely biblical and Anglican. Look in the Book of Common Prayer and you'll see it there. And when they do have to take that step, it can be easy, can't it, for the rest of us in the church to say that they've acted acted harshly, when in fact, it's far from harsh. It's the most loving thing they could ever have done. And that means that, that we in the church family must support them in their action. We must pray for those who are disciplining people and pray for those who are being disciplined, that they will come to their senses and so be restored to Christ and restored to the fellowship. Because, you know, if we don't do that, all we're doing is acting like the Corinthian church. So the first reason why purity matters is that sin is lethal because God is going to judge us. But just in case we're still feeling a little bit soft on sin, and I suspect Paul was uh, continuing to write these things because he wanted to make sure that the Corinthian church had really sussed what he was saying, Paul goes on in verses 6 to 8 to remind them and us that sin is contagious and that bad company will corrupt. You see, if you and I fail to act on sin, not only will it be disastrous for the individual who is sinning, But it will be also disastrous for the rest of the church family around them. Just listen to verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? You see, sin, if we tolerate sin, it is going to spread. Untreated, the whole church will become infected. If you and I keep the company of sinners like that, there's every likelihood that we will follow suit. And the result is that you and I will will just end up, yes, we may end up so-called enjoying what they're doing, but we will also, in inverted commas, enjoy their judgment, a judgment which will take them to hell if they do not repent. We're all aware, aren't we, of uh, swine flu. Uh, The uh, news is that this week, The first vaccines are going to be around in this country. And and we're vaccinating people, aren't we? Because swine flu is contagious. None of us want to catch it. We all know that it can be passed on. And so we keep those who are infected in isolation to protect them and everybody else. But you know what? I, I, I fear that as a church family, we may be far more concerned about swine flu than about sin. Because though the consequences of swine flu may be temporal, the consequences of sin are eternal. I think of uh, two churches where I've been on the staff. Uh, I think of uh, one church in which uh, the Bible was clearly not taught about uh, sexual relationships. Indeed, uh, one of the ministers left uh, his wife to have a homosexual affair. One of the other ministers divorced his wife. And people in that church were standing around saying, that that was fine. And their, their view on uh, those passages in scripture were that that was what Paul says. That's what the culture of the time said. Not what, what God says. And so even people in the youth group were saying, can I not sleep with my uh, boyfriend or girlfriend? Because everybody else in the church is doing something that's sexually immoral. Do you see how sin corrupts everybody else around it? And just to make the point more clear, Paul goes on here in verses 7 and 8 just to say, Look, just let me read 7 and 8. Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. You see, what uh, Paul is saying here is that You Christians, you have been saved by Jesus Christ. Saved not to continue in the old life, a life of sin, but to pursue a new life, a life of purity. And the illustrations here hark back to the Israelites being saved from Egypt. Saved by the Passover. Saved by the blood of the Lamb. And you and I, if we're Christians here, are saved not by the blood of a physical lamb, but by the blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We are saved to live a new life of purity. Let's do that. Let's do it. Anyone who uh, was alive during the Cold War years, and I can look around here and see that most of us, or at least, yes, most of us here this morning uh, knew something of the Cold War. You'll have known that uh, Berlin was split with a wall and there were certain sort of passing points through the wall and one of those was Checkpoint Charlie, And now that uh, the Cold War's over and Berlin is uh, reunited, there's now a museum at Checkpoint, Charlie, uh, a museum with lots and lots of photographs of those people who tried to escape, some of whom did did succeed, from the regime in East Berlin to the freedom in West. And, you know, there's loads and loads of pictures of people escaping and trying to escape, but there are no pictures of somebody trying to escape back again trying to go back into the awful regime under which they once lived. And you know what? That's exactly what Christians are doing if we don't pursue a life of purity. We're going back to an old regime that all that that can do is send us to hell. No, Paul says, pursue purity. And I think the implications of these verses are far-reaching. I think they're important for us as individuals, aren't they? They call us to look at our own consciences and wrestle with our ongoing sins because we are a danger to other people if we are sinning. God has called you and me to live for him now and not to put others off doing the same. There are also uh, implications for us as a church. They tell us that sin is never a purely personal thing. It affects all of us. So when one person in the family sins, it affects everybody else. And that surely must drive us back to the cross, doesn't it? Back to our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificed for us. Back to him for his forgiveness and for his transformation. That's why we're so serious about saying transformation, not information. The word of God is to transform us, not just to inform us. And you know what, if we're we're serious about Vision 2010, about the plans for God's kingdom here in forward and beyond, then we must take the contagious nature of sin very seriously. Because sin is going to undermine our message to a perishing world. That they need saving. And sin will also undermine our ministry among one another. We battle very hard against swine flu, don't we? But do we battle hard against sin? Are we going to battle hard against sin? Because it's lethal and it's contagious. God is going to judge us and we can catch it. But then, just in case we think that uh, action is just something that the church leadership should be doing, Verses 9 to 13 tell us, uh, my third and final point, that, that sin is abhorrent, and because it's abhorrent, all the church must judge. Listen again to verse 9, 10, and 11. I've written to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or the greedy, swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, i.e. somebody who calls himself a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. Before we look in depth at those verses, I think two caveats need to be said to all of us. The first thing to remember is that we are all sinners. This side of heaven, none of us is going to lead a perfect life. We are all going to be falling into sin. And so if if we were to apply these verses wrongly this morning, that would mean that there would only be one person left in this church this morning. Because everybody else would be expelled by everybody else until there'll be one sinner left in here who couldn't and maybe not, wouldn't, expel themselves. No, we are all sinners. And secondly, Paul here is, is not speaking about the person who is struggling with sin and fighting it. He's actually speaking about the persistent, unrepentant sinner who keeps on sinning regardless and doesn't try to fight it. It's those kind of people that Paul is saying we should judge, that we're to disassociate ourselves from, because sin is abhorrent. And because sin is abhorrent, we should steer clear of it. And we do so in order to tell other people that what they're doing is wrong. It means, therefore, that we don't go out for drinks with somebody like that, it means we don't have a cup of coffee with somebody who is flagrantly, deliberately living like that. We don't have the lunch that we might usually have had with them until they repent. That sounds tough, love. But it's real love. It's real love. And then, as you see, we look at what Paul is telling people to be aware of in verse 11. We'll see that those sins, and it's not an exclusive list of sins, will see that their very 21st century sexual immorality that means anything other than sex between a husband and a wife it means those sleeping together before marriage it means adultery it means homosexuality the world says it's fine our culture tries to make us say it's fine even people in the church try to say it's fine but God's word doesn't say it's fine If you and I love such people, then we will tell them. And if they won't listen and won't listen and won't listen, we'll take another brother with us to tell them. And then we may well have to exclude them for their good and the good of others. Greed, that's a silent sin, isn't it? It's easy to say I'm not greedy and say to somebody, prove it. Where I uh, lived in Wimbledon Park, it was quite affluent very easy to pretend that we weren't greedy because we just say, well, look at the person next door. I wonder if we in forward maybe find that a struggle too. Maybe that's a sin that we're compliant and complicit in. Idolatry, making anyone or anything take first place in our lives other than God. Career, family, hobby, hobby, you know what it is for you. Slander. Saying what we want to about other people. It's easy to gossip, isn't it? It's easy to say something about somebody and, and couch it in sort of pastoral words. I'm being pastorally concerned for them. When actually, it's just slanderous. The drunkard. Drunkenness, I think, is reaching epidemic proportions. The government is really trying to step on it. And we as a church family should do the same. Not because we're virtuous, but because God has said we should not be drunks. I wonder if that too is creeping into our church life. And then the swindler, those who cheat other people, those who cheat God. I don't know what your sin is. Maybe something else other than that. I don't know what the person next to you and what their sin is. It may be something else too. But Paul says we need to help one another. And help may come ultimately when we distance ourselves from those who are sinning. It's the loving thing to do. It may be necessary. I want you to imagine that uh, this morning we're here present at uh, a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I've never been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but uh, just imagine that we were at a meeting. This is one of their group meetings here this morning. We're all recovering from alcohol addiction and suddenly uh, Bob walks in the back uh, with uh, a big tray of glasses and uh, a load of gin and whiskey or whatever else proceeds to pour it out into the glasses and uh, take a glass and drink and encourage the rest of you to drink. What would we do? Well, for their sake and for ours we'd probably kick them out, wouldn't we? That would be the loving thing to do to show them that they're living in a wrong way. To show them the error of their ways so they come to their senses. Well, you'll be glad to hear we aren't Alcoholics Anonymous here this morning, but we are sinners being sanctified. We're a family that's all in danger from sin. And just uh, for those of you here this morning who perhaps wouldn't call yourselves Christians, let me just read to you these final verses which will make us all wake up again to the dreadful consequences of sin. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, Paul says? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Reminder that we'll all be judged for our sin. The big question is, will we play our part? Will these words here this morning transform how we live? Transform us to be a cross-shaped church? Are we going to use the small groups that we're in and the prayer triplets that we're in for accountability? To keep one another accountable and living the pure life. And if you're not in one of those groups, can I encourage you to, to be so? Because it's so easy in a large church just to get lost and for sin just to fester away until it's really got its hold on us? Are we going to be those who lovingly look out for our brothers and sisters and help them to see their sin for what it is? We all struggle with sin, don't we? I don't know what your sin that you're struggling with particularly is this morning. It may well be that you're someone who has never come to Jesus and asked him for forgiveness for your sin. So can I just end by just reminding ourselves that the solution to overcoming sin, it's painful and eternal consequences. It's both extremely simple, but also it's profoundly difficult at the same time. Let me just explain to you what I mean. It's difficult because it means that you and I have got to own up to our responsibility for our sin. We need to confess our sin to God, and that takes guts There's no use trying to excuse it, justify it. In fact, only sort of trying to argue that we've had mitigating circumstances for our sin. All that's going to do is just come between you and God and make his way of work within you more difficult. And it's extremely simple because all we have to do is recognize our guilt, cast ourselves upon his mercy, upon the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. And then submit ourselves to living for Him, living by His Word, transformed by His Word. Are you ready to pursue holiness and purity this morning? I hope with me you are. Let's pray.